Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Right now, listeners of this program can get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Just go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the offer code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off of any purchase. Get yourself some earbuds. Get yourself some headphones. Improve your listening situation at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. right, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is uh, almost famous. This is abundantly clear. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's very nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest, I have a great show for you today. Very excited about it. My guest is Jonathan Evison. Uh, Johnny and I go back a ways. As a matter of fact, believe it or not, Jonathan Evison was the very first guest on this program. Uh, episode one, many moons ago. Uh, I think that was what, four years ago? Has it been four years? Have I been doing this for four years? Almost to the day, if uh, my memory serves me correctly. Jonathan Evison, a very prolific, very talented novelist whose latest offering is called This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. Uh, it is a novel available now from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. I should add uh, that this novel was the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown uh, com. For those of you not in the loop, is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club. Go sign up for that at thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on book club in the menu bar. Also, go get the app. This podcast has its own official app. It actually has a brand new uh, look, a brand new feel. The Other People app, a brand new iteration available now for free wherever apps are available. It's the best way to listen to this program, people. Get the app on your device when you do that. New episodes automatically upload, and you'll have access to the most recent 50 episodes for free. Most recent 50, free. New episodes automatically upload. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline or in transit. And then if you want to get at everything, if you want to have access to all of the episodes, just sign up for Other People Premium. Uh, it's a subscription right there within the app. You sign up very easily right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. It's a great way to support the show. Please do that. Get the Other People app. 
So, uh, has it been four years? What day is it? I feel like it's all, you know, I've been up, uh, for almost 24 hours. I was up a lot last night. Couldn't sleep. My son woke me up. I fed him. Couldn't go back to sleep. I started to fall back asleep. He was ready for another feeding. Got up again. Didn't really sleep. It's all the same day. What is that Janis Joplin, uh, song? I don't even know what the song is, but I remember, uh, here's a little, uh, Brad Listy trivia. First compact disc I ever bought, Janis Joplin's Greatest Hits. I bought it at the Fashion Mall in a music store. Was it Sam Goody? At the Fashion Mall in Indianapolis. Because in Indianapolis, when you have a mall, you call it the Fashion Mall. I grew up hanging out at the Fashion Mall. That's where I, uh, that's where I went on weekends. And I bought Janis Joplin's Greatest Hits, and there's like some song on there where she talks about how it's all the same day. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Let me see if I can find that. I don't understand. You guys remember this? <laughs> Janis Joplin? She's like wasted. How come you're gone, man? Yeah. I don't understand why half the world is still crying. When the other half of the world is still crying too, man, and I can't get it together. I'll say. <laughs> I mean, if you got a cat for one day, man, I don't mean, if you, say, say maybe you want a cat for 365 days, right? Did she just you say cat? You ain't got it for 365 days. You got it for one day, man. Well, I'll tell you, that one day, man, better be your life, man. Is she talking about a cat? Because, you know, you can say, oh, man, you can cry about the other 364, man. But you're going to lose that one day, man. And that's all you got. You got to call that love, man. That's what it is, man. If you got it today, you don't wear it tomorrow, man. This encapsulates my emotional world with uh, frightening accuracy. This is how I feel inside. Because you don't need it. Because as a matter of fact, as we discovered on the terrain, tomorrow never happens. Wait, did she say uh, terrain or train? We learned on the terrain? It's all the same fucking day, man. There, <laughs> there it is. Janis Joplin, ladies and gentlemen. It's all the same fucking day, man. So what else? You know, uh, just briefly, I've been having some ideas. Part of uh, being awake all the time is that you have a lot of time to think, especially late at night. No one's up. You're just you know, sort of lying there in a uh, fugue state, listening to a gurgling, snoring baby, or feeding a baby. And uh, I've been thinking, you know, you know, I should get some uh, portable microphones. I should get some street microphones, if that's a term. Is street microphones a term? Can somebody find out if street microphones is a term? I've been thinking about getting some street microphones and just talking to people randomly on the streets of Los Angeles, turning the microphones on, heading out into the general uh, population and seeing what happens. Maybe I should, uh, I'm going to do a Kickstarter for some street microphones. Do you guys, will you guys support that? <laughs> I like the idea of doing a show about some kind of event, but here's the thing. It could be anything, A, and B, I don't want it to be anything spectacular. I don't want it to be anything controversial or sensational. I want it to be ordinary. I want it to be a birthday party. I want it to be a family reunion. I want it to be a quinceanera. A quinceanera? You know what I mean. The dress. I want to show up with my street microphones, start talking to people, see what happens. Because I'm fascinated by people. This show's called Other People, Not By Accident. I'm very tired. What's happening out there? Did you see the blood moon? 
I didn't even care about the blood moon. That's not like me. I was too tired to care about the blood moon. I couldn't get off the couch. It was getting dark. I'd hit some sort of uh, wall, some sort of psychic fatigue wall. I was trying to get my kids to bed. My daughter, who's five years old, had heard about the blood moon. She had heard about the big eclipse at school, and I was trying to get her to bed, and she's like, "Uh, but Daddy, I want to see the eclipse. And I was like, don't worry about it, honey. There's going to be plenty more eclipses. But Daddy, I want to see... Don't talk back to your father. (laughs) Go to bed. We'll We'll see an eclipse another time. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Johnny Evison. His new novel, his critically acclaimed new novel is called This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. It's available now from Algonquin. It is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here you go, guys. This is it. This is the one and only Jonathan Evison. Last time I talked about having blood in my seat. That's okay. I wanted, that's what I want to know about. I want to know about uh, what's troubling you. What's troubling you? Um, a little IBS. Yeah? Maybe. No, it's not, uh, no, not IBS. It's the other one. Uh, reflux. I get a little reflux. You got a little reflux. What are you eating these days? Are you eating a good diet? I ate, uh, I had one of those green machine smoothies. There you go. And I was feeling so good about myself that, um. What is this like a, what, like a Adwala, like an airport yeah, that's thing? that's all I had. That's, and then I had dinner last night. Okay. All right. You've been taking care of yourself? No, I haven't. I not at all? Not at all. I've done nine events in eight days and I drank beer every night. I've, I've done no shots. One shot. One shot in eight days, which is a record for me. No coffee, also a record. <clears throat> Wait, you, do you, I've like, only smoked pot once in eight days. So, I mean, that's pretty much clean living. But the thing is, is I've still got drunk every night, and I didn't, you know, I slept my best four or five hours tops. Jesus. Yeah. You're like, but you, we've talked about this before. You have an unusual <clears throat> level of energy, like a manic energy. Mm-hmm. Like you're able to really grind and like work uh, intensively on a book. I think right now, because of your uh, family situation, you have young children, as do I. And so what you do now uh, is different from in the past. Where, like in the past, you were down in, what, your basement? And yeah. you were working. It's much uh, like your studio here. Yeah, yeah right. There's my, mine's even, mine was even grosser. Yeah, I remember the, you were telling the me. The dogs had just pissed everywhere in there. And, it was you, like and you were like peeing. bunnies like the size of your shoe. Weren't you peeing in jars? Is yeah, that, well, that was when I was riding west of here because I couldn't. I was riding all over the ceiling, you know. I was making these thought maps. It was like Russell Crowe in that math movie, <laughs> and I, I was afraid. I mean, literally, if I if I left the room, I wouldn't understand what I was talking about. So my wife would, you know, leave the sandwich outside the door, kind of thing, and I would, you know, I would pee in baby food jars. Okay, 
Those are small, though. I know. So you'd have multiple I'd have jars. To have, I'd have to have three or four <laughs> handy at a time. So now, though, because this interests me, now, and this is what I, when I talk about, like, your ability to do the work, uh, the discipline, the commitment, but also the resourcefulness, you're now in a situation where you are, um, you're a family man, you're involved in childcare, what, three or four days a week, and then five days a week, and then a couple days a week you take off in your camper, and you go up into the hills and ride, or where do you go? Well, you know, I used to be Mr. Workaday, wake up at 5 a.m., work till noon, like six days a week. And, of course, as you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of groping down blind alleys, a lot of navel-gazing, a lot of moisturizing things, (laughs) other extracurricular activities during that time. But then once I had the kids, it was like I tried to do it. I tried to even get up at 4, but then they'd get up at 6. So uh, what I did is we have a cabin out in uh, between Squim and Port Angeles now. And um, so two... Two and a half days a week, I go out there by myself. Um, the rest of the time, we're both staying at home. So we're together four and a half days a week as a family. I go out there for two two nights and three days of work. They show up on Friday late afternoon. Then we spend the spend the weekend together. And then we go back to the other house for two days. And then I go back to the cabin. And it's only you know hour and 15 minutes each way. So it's really manageable. Yeah. And I never thought I'd be able to work that way. But it's actually uh, it's better. Because, you know, a couple hours a day, I'm like you. I'm pushing my daughter in the stroller or yeah. something and texting myself messages, daydreaming the story. And then by the time I get there, man, there's just no screwing around. You know, there's a little moisturizing, but I mean, it's <laughs> more uh, – I mean, I really – I mean, I know what I'm doing. There's a lot less just, you know, chasing stuff down blind alley. So, Are you getting better at writing as you go? How many novels have you done now? Fifteen. Fifteen. And just and to you give pu- you an idea – well, I've published four and one's in the pipe – but uh, to give you an idea, no, I'm not getting better. I mean, I think I'm getting better by the time they're finished, the ones I don't throw away. I mean, I, I threw away the novel I finished right before Harriet. I, I mean, I literally, I just, the center wouldn't hold. There was 16 points of view, and it had all these dis, disparate themes like uh, country music. Which one was that? This, was that called, was a... The Dream Life of Huntington Sales. Yeah, I remember, I remember talking to you about that. Yeah, it, was a, it, was a, it just sounds like a mess. I mean, with a title <laughs> like that. And then, I, I mean, I had themes like country music, schizophrenia, global conspiracy, and commercial logging. Oh, I mean, it was, it, it, had, it was some great writing and some great characters, but it just didn't hold. So, Are you, is it you know, sal- that was is my it, 13th book, and it, I mean, I, it's gone. I threw it away. I mean, is it I salvageable? It. Well, I mean, not now. I mean, it's erased. I mean, I figured out what I did is I covered my ping pong table and butcher paper, and uh, I started thought mapping it like I did with West of Here. And I did figure out how to go back to it and fix it, but that meant... You know, no, I just don't know if I want to. I stripped it down to two points of view. I figured, I figured everything out. This is going to be like the white whale. This is like the the lost, uh, the lost novel of John. I know this is the one where if I ever just off myself, it's like, <laughs> I just kind of should have just left it how it was, just a hot mess, and people are going, you know, let let people argue about how brilliant it is. So who know? makes the decision? <laughs> who makes the decision? Because you're an author of uh, accomplishment. Yeah, you're not like debuting. You I know? made the decision. You did. I mean, well, yeah, I had already been paid for the book. I mean, it was a second. You know, it was the second book on my Harriet deal. But uh, I, I'm delivering Mike Munoz saves the world instead so I, I rewrote a different novel and, and, and everybody's going to be happy with that and and so yeah it was my decision and Harriet was a mess in the first couple of drafts I mean I tried to deliver that and they're like eh, no don't think so and then uh then I reinvented it and now everyone loves it including me but uh it was uh you know it I don't think it gets any easier you get it you get uh you know but you don't panic when that happens no that's I mean, normal you know, the only time I would panic is if it's financial you know like I really got to get it out just to just to deliver it so that I can get paid because you know I'm I'm the only income. Um, but that that I'm, I've got managed at this point to build myself a little more of a pad, so that's not a problem anymore. Um, yeah, I don't know. And you got a and you've got a, you've got one of your books being made into a movie. 
yeah. a major motion picture it's already made, starring Paul Rudd. Yeah, who uh, else? Ostensibly is me, which is cool. Dude, you know, he's better looking, funnier. He's handsome. Everybody likes him. Everybody likes him. Everybody, kids, dogs. you friends with him? What? Well, I'm, I met him on set. He was a super nice guy, just like one of his characters. I, I you know, I'm not friends. I mean, okay, you're not you know, te- not him. texting. I hung out with him, him for about four days. Are you having set. lunch with him here and when you're in town? No. Okay. No. Someday so maybe I'd like that. I uh, promised uh, one of my sales reps. Uh, pair of dirty socks from him <laughs> a I lock to figure of his, out a way to broach that with him a lock of his hair yeah no dirty socks he's dreaming i'm pretty sure my wife has a crush on him everybody's I'm wife sure everybody's wife has a crush on him. selena gomez is also in it and um she's cute she is uh yeah and she's really come a long way as an actor i mean rob made her really work for the part you know i mean she she had like 50 offers and she only wanted to play the part of dot because it was just you know it's kind of a breakout role and and this she is just a re- kept revised back and forth across the country and reading until she got it right. And revised fundamentals. Yeah, that's the book that's being made. Revised a movie. fundamentals. Who's directing? Rob Burnett, Worldwide Pants. Yeah, Letterman's exec producer. He made another little film on like a million bucks a few years back that was really good called We Made This Movie. It was like an ensemble piece about some high schoolers in like Akron or something. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it was actually really good. I mean, it was cute. I think this is going to be a big step for him. He's got a better budget, more talent. Uh, you so who, you and you co-wrote the script? No, I didn't do anything. You didn't that's touch the it. Beauty of it. I but bought, you, a, I bought a hot tub and built a deck. That's, that's it. what I did. That's, <laughs> that's just the way I want it. I yeah. don't, I've written scripts before. I don't like writing scripts. I just I lose all my figurative language. I start feeling like I'm a slave to plot points, and I just you know, I mean, I think I've written five or six scripts. It's been a while, but uh, I mean, I did learn a lot about you know just story structure, structure, Aristotelian dramatics and stuff like that. But like more than anything, I, I felt like I lost a lot. I lost the writing loses its personality, you know? It's a, uh, yeah, it's a different kind of thing. It doesn't really have a temperament. Like my prose has a temperament and a mood and a tenor and, and with, you know, it's mostly just stage direction. I mean, I've read scripts in the past that try to, try to insert personnel. Like, I mean, back when I was reading scripts in the nineties here in LA, it was, you know, Shane Black would always be kind of a wise ass in his scripts, you know, and yeah. have little inside jokes, but they really had no bearing on the final product. It was right. just trying to get people through the script. So yeah, I did nothing. I mean, I consulted a little when they asked. You for, showed up on set. Yeah. They, How long were you there? Uh, four or five days. Okay. Yeah. Was it, was, it surreal seeing like your, your novel? Uh, well, I've been on a lot of sets. So no, you know, I mean, I, I think I've had, I tried to take a healthy attitude about all of this. I didn't, first of all, I just, once Rob won me over and I trusted him, I just said, this is your baby. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I mean, I realized the dictates between a 300 page novel and a, and a two hour film are so radically different. How can you expect them to be the same and so you know i knew it would be more of a road movie i mean like in the book there's 100 pages before you know it hits the road i'm trying desperately in those first 100 pages to 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 uh to to you know sidetrack any chance of a road trip or subvert it but um you know in the film i'm as i recall uh like 15 it, pages in you're on the oh, road probably even less i mean you know it's yeah. more of a it's montages i think i mean they, they want to hit the road quick it's hollywood you know? yeah yeah but i think you get know, them on the road I think it's good, though. I think it'll be good. I haven't seen seen the whole thing. When does it come out? I don't know. Next year? You okay. know, probably, I, I'd guess this time next year. I think they're planning on Sundance for a debut, and then after that, I don't know about a studio. I, Paul Rudd starring as you in a movie. You could do worse, dude. <laughs> I could do a lot worse. I mean, I could get Giamatti, which would be awesome, but then I, you know, I'd, have to, I'd probably start going to the gym or something. Hey, man. I love Giamatti. I love him, too. Did you, uh, did you like Sideways? I loved Sideways. God, man. And I loved, uh, what's his name? And, uh, Thomas Andy, Hayden Church? Yeah, he was awesome. Right. I loved him. It was just like a perfect part for him. Yeah, I loved, I adored that movie. 
Wasn't that Alexander Payne? Alexander Payne. I like all his movies. It, just the pain of the writer's life, well represented in that movie. Yeah, all his movies, though. Like I, I feel like every time we go out with one of my books, like to option it, he's always on the top of my list because I feel like his temperament as a filmmaker is a lot like mine as a novelist. He's not trying to wow you with, uh, you know, his 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 cinematographic style or anything. You know, I mean, he doesn't have Laszlo Kovac shooting the thing or anything, and like. I, it's kind of with me. I mean, he's just he just gives everything in service to the story and the performances and stuff. So I, he, I really liked uh, the, the Hawaii one too. Well, yeah, no, he's a great, but he's also a great uh, adapter. I mean, I think. Uh, try, I mean, election, election was a, everything's an adaptation. Yeah, uh, the Hawaii one with Clooney. What was that one called? Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. The, the Descendants. That was a, yeah, the Descendants. I that was Cowie that. Hart Hemmings or whatever. Yeah, uh, I love any movie where George Clooney runs. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny to watch him run. I've noticed it for like twenty years, and I'm like, finally, that now they make him run in every film. What? What is he? What does he? What do you mean? He, he runs just with... runs funny. He kind of he's, he's got like a lot of space. He's kind of a what do you call it? Bandy legged or something? Okay. Just, it's just it's comical. And I finally I think Hollywood caught up, and now they make him run in every. Wait, movie. See, is it an unattractive gate? I can't remember. Well, no, this. it's just a, I, I would just call it a comic gate. I just want him to have a flaw. So it's, is it? I mean, would you consider it a flaw? No, I'd consider it charming. Charming. Like everything else about him. His hair always falls right. <laughs> I mean, he punches David O. Russell. Yeah. You know. Dude, you, you know, I've heard bits and pieces, or I've read bits and pieces about He was that. sticking up for the crew. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, I've heard, well, you know, and Rosemary was his aunt, and yeah, I mean, every, everything they say about George Clooney is just, like, wonderful. It's a charming bastard. Yeah. Lives a charmed life. I wouldn't take Bastard off. He's just a charming man. He's a charming man. I'd love to meet him. <laughs> Maybe he'll star. As, I would like that. <laughs> So and I'm sorry to David O. Russell that he punched it. Just in case David O. Russell's reading my. I mean, who knows, man? You know, like who knows what happened? And who, like, it's, you know, uh, making films, collaborative art, being on the set, pressure, shit can happen. Yeah, uh, and you, you know, directors tend to be kind of hotheads sometimes. Right, a little maybe egotistical. Uh, I did really like Silver Linings Playbook. Did you see that? That's the same producer that produced my film, Donna Gigliotti. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah, you're in good company. I know. I, I, I hope so. I loved that film. Oh yeah, that was a really good like that was like one of the I mean, it's a good romantic comedy. You don't see those very often. Yeah, it was often. quirky and, and thoughtful. It had heart, and you know uh, that book sold like four thousand copies and went out of print. And then and then they made the movie and it sold like you know half a million copies or something. Jesus. So you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, that could be a little <laughs> bit of a life changer. But I'm I'm just cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you got to see how the film turns out. I, right. I always say. Um, it's a miracle. I mean, because, uh, you know, you write a novel, it's you and your editor. Maybe you have like a small circle of readers who are, you know, early in the process helping you shape it or whatever. But really, it's you. With a film, it's so unwieldy and it's such a fucked up process just trying to get something through the pipes that it seems like a miracle whenever a movie gets made and it's good. Like yeah. how in the or world? whenever it gets made, yeah. I mean, whenever in a adaptation gets made I feel like it's a miracle because you know I've, I've optioned I've optioned two books that I never even published I've optioned most of the stuff I've ever written and at some point during that process there's always the oh so and so's reading it and you know link letters interested or so, you know there's some there's always the like you know you get your hopes up and then you know nothing, nothing happens. Ever happens and this one just happened so quick that I decided early on I mean even you know I know it's going to be Pretty good. I mean, because I saw Paul and Craig, and they have the great repartee. And I, I mean, I know there's going to be charming and good things about it, but like, I just decided that just whatever happens, I'm just happy it happened. You know, it's just a miracle. It's yeah. Like, you know, free money. Fuck yeah. It doesn't happen to writers very much. Free money. That's awesome. I, mean, I work my butt off. I yeah. got 23 more cities to go. I'm just selling books. You know, 10 a night. Yep. You know, that's how you build it, though. Yeah, has it? Has it? I mean, that's a, that's a good question to ask because 
Uh, I think your reputation in like the little circle of literary people that are out there is that you're really hardworking. You're clearly um, churning out novels that are, uh, you know, critically well-received and you're building your readership or I think you're building your readership. You're on the road. You're, you're doing the, that work with enthusiasm in a way that uh, some writers maybe don't. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think every writer would like to just sit up in their ivory tower. But I mean, the fact is, you, this is the thing that makes my art possible. If I don't, you know, if if I can't get it to readers, I mean, I'm writing the thing to connect with people, right? And so if it helps me to connect by hitting the road for 35 cities, then yeah, I'm going to do it. But what I, what I realize to... is if you're going to be a best-selling novelist, yeah. two things, one of two things has to happen. Either you're selling books to people who don't read, you know what I mean? Or... You're, you you develop such a, a loyal core reader base that you can sell books three and four times. Like, I love this guy. I drank beer with him. He's really nice. We went out to dinner. I bought this book for my aunt. I bought it for my son. I bought, you know, if you can sell a book three or four times to people, then you can be a bestseller. Otherwise, you have to just kind of count on the publicity machine to, you know, and, and I don't even know if that works. You know, I was in Oprah this time around. I'm supposed to be in People and all this. I don't know if that stuff works. What I do know that works is like just going to book clubs, sitting around with 15 women, drinking their, drinking their beer, eating their cheese, yeah. and they'll buy your book three and four times, you know? I mean that that's I think that's you know that's my model because it's sustainable. I'm Over all about time. sustaining because I have nothing else to do, you know. Right. I could go back to landscaping at, you know, 12 bucks an hour. Right. But I mean, you know, that's the thing though. It's like you feel like the work is paying off. You've been doing this for years. This is the fourth novel you've published. Yeah. And um do you have a sense numbers-wise that like the the work is paying off bit by bit or like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I see I think I just see my core audience growing, you know. I mean, I I haven't had a book just totally break out to that point where I like you said where like you know where where people that read one book a year are suddenly reading it you know I mean I haven't I haven't read, written a book that broke like uh, you know like uh, Maria Semple's book you know like where right. to go Bernadette where right. like, people that don't read read that book you know right or, or Franzen where like you know hundreds of thousands of people buy it just to have it on their shelf and you know many of them probably won't yeah, even what read is it? it it's a weird like exalted place that you get to when you're uh, Jonathan Friends, and I was talking to a friend of mine about this. I've talked about this before on this show, I'm sure, but it's like, you know, there's these writers, there's like a, a set of writers, or I would say a class of writers. The word class really comes to mind. They don't participate in social media. They don't have to. They don't do any of the shit, it seems like, that normal writers do, and yet they still get publicity. Their books still sell. Um, obviously, quality has something to do with it. They're really good writers. You know, they clearly are connecting with people, but um, I don't know. I think I was really in particular is a great provocateur though. I mean, every time he, uh, whether or not he's doing it on purpose, every time he opens his mouth, he says something really dumb that, that gets everybody's hackles. I, up. I, I, mean, I mean, I want to understand youth. So I'm going to adopt a war baby. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interview some high school students. I mean, right. Well, no, that's, that's what I mean. Like for somebody who has no interest in social media, he owns social media. Yeah. He generates press by saying stuff that just like, what did he just say that? So in a way he is involved. He just isn't like, uh, you know, willingly involved. Maybe I don't, I don't yeah. know. And I feel like Dave Eggers. We're all just jealous of him. Yeah. I, I bought some glasses like his. Did you? Yeah. So Let me now see. I've got the name and the glasses. I really need them for reading, but see, <laughs> now if I, I got the name, Jonathan. I got the glasses. Yeah, dude. I'm You're right on... next to him on the bookshelf pretty much. Him, Faulkner, Fante, and Fred Exley. Yeah. And then now all I need is his sales track. There you go. I'm, I'm, and I made it. I think you're on your way, dude. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of good indicators. I hope so. You feel good. Well, here I am. Here you are in this shit old garage. <laughs> I love it, man. Yeah, man, yeah. Um, so with this latest book, you're inhabiting uh, an elderly woman. 
yeah. channeling an elderly woman. Yeah. I'm you... not going to say it's the first time I've been inside <laughs> an elderly woman. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's terrible. How do, how do you do that? Same way I do anything. I just get out of my own way. You know, my mom's, my mom's 80 years old. She's the same age of Harriet. And so, you know, I, I kind of looked at her and I, I'm, you know, the whole impetus for this novel is that uh, I'm usually writing about marginalized characters in some way, you know, or a whole town that's marginalized, like Port Bonita. And, and nobody is more marginalized than 80-year-old women in this culture. You know what I mean? There's been a conscious effort on the part of advertisers like 30 years ago um, to stop marketing to these people, to stop programming to these people, to stop paying attention to them unless you're in the healthcare industry. However, I will say, it's kind of the zeitgeist, I think, but now it's coming back the other way with this Lily Tomlin thing. People are paying attention. But about 30 years ago, you know, they started pulling the plug on Golden Girls and Matlock and just stopped paying. You know, the, the conventional wisdom was that the, these people are too set in their ways. Their brand loyalty is so strong that we're not going to bother throwing advertising dollars at them, even if they are still the biggest money demo. Yeah. And um, we just marginalize elderly people in so many ways. I'm guilty of it. I live in Squim retirement community and, and, and you know you can bet if I'm in the grocery store and I see a line with six people in it and then I see a line with two old ladies in it I go right to the six because I know what's going to happen it's like they, uh, you know they yeah. have yeah, yeah. the purse up under the thing and then <laughs> unsnap it and they start digging around for the checkbook but not till everything's rung up yeah. and they have to check the register first and then out come the reading glasses yeah, and then yeah. the coupon book and then the <laughs> circular and they hold it up to the check stand person and they go oh I'm sorry man this this you know expired six months ago and they go oh well I've got a new one dear and she goes back so you know I'm guilty of it too I'm back there tapping my sandal on the floor going with that you know um but I mean they're really it's kind of a unique thing to western culture most most cultures you know have so much more respect for the elderly I mean I was going to say most we experience the it, most yeah uh, we're we're youth, we're youth obsessed uh to a very unhealthy degree and it's criminal how uh, we devalue our elders. Yeah, I mean, our own parents. We, you know, we, we sequester them away in assisted living. We visit them less and less, you know. So I was looking at my mom going, okay, I want to write a book about somebody of this, you know, this age. This, you know, she's a little bit younger than the women of the greatest generation or whatever. And, and, and so I was looking at her life using this tiny aperture and kind of looking at her from the outside in. And, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll be mom. Why don't you come over and see the kids today? She lives a mile and a half away. And she said, well, I got to wash my hair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you could, you know, Multitask. squeeze them both in today. <laughs> but no. And so I started writing this novel about Harriet's small life as a widow where, you know, Harriet pads across the kitchen and puts the tea water on to boil and it begins to hiss. And, you know, Harriet looks out the window and thinks about something that happened in 1956. And then, you know, the tea water boils and she lets it steep and she takes a sip and the steam curls over her face and she thinks about 1938 and and you know chapter two and it just went on like that it was like stultifyingly linear and like it, it just it was it, it didn't breathe and then i finally had an aha moment you know that's when i broke the linearity of the thing open and realized i had a perfect because you know i don't like linear narratives my narratives are always trying to frustrate the linearity because i like to tell stories in an interesting way and this was a perfect opportunity because it's a book of memory and, and you know, memory and reflection, which are totally nonlinear and, and, processes. And when, when you tell stories, stories uh, orally, very rarely are you working linear. There's always like sidetracks and. Well, listen, listen to me spiral. I don't yeah. remember what the question was. <laughs> I think I'm, you know, somewhere around it. Yeah, no. I just the key. I guess the whole key of writing fiction to me asked. I guess what you asked was how how did I how did I kind of inhabit Harriet? I just get out of my own way. I mean, it's almost like an exercise and. 
in empathy. You know, you just get out of the. That's why I need such quiet. I can't work with the kids. If I'm out at the cabin, I just, you know, I don't smell the the coffee on my own breath. I, I, I'm not aware of my surroundings, which is why I was able to work in such a shithole of an office for so long. Everyone's like, ew, how can you be down here? Why don't you clean it up? And I'm like, you know, I, I, don't I work want in it here. to be nice. You know, I don't want it to be nice yeah, where I, I work. Care. I mean, the idea is you got to be focused on your work. I mean, if you're in a nice, you know, cedar paneled room with a library in it, I mean, you're likely to just start, you know, kicking your feet up and. So I just get out of my own way and inhabit the character and really, you know, as long as the character has some sort of goal or, or you know, some sort of plan or goal for self-realization, then I, I can never really get lost. I can just trust them and, and let them follow me or I, I follow them rather. And, you know, at some point they have to become your galley slave, I guess, in later drafts when you got to rein things in and stuff like that. But other than that, I trust my characters to lead me. And But your mom was the, the colonel. Kind of. My mom and the fact that when I was 17 years old, I went and lived with my grandma in a senior citizen motorhome park in Sunnyvale. I was her caregiver. And, um, and uh, you know, so she, she was a, kind of a black sheep in the family because, you know, I grew up in a family of bodybuilders. This is, you know, Chronicle and Lulu. And uh, she was, she'd smoke two packs a day of Palm Malls. <laughs> and she'd drink, uh, she'd drink a 12-pack of Schaefer beer out of a straw every day. But just on a slow drip, like one per hour all day. She was never, like, demonstrably drunk. And then she'd just sit there with two cataracts and stare in the direction of the TV, you know, Channel 44 in the Bay Area. It was like, you know, Ironside, followed by Perry Mason, followed by Rockford Files, followed by, you know, uh, Starsky and Hutch kind of thing. And we'd just sit there. It was, I mean, we were, it was awesome. But the other women in the park. How old were you? I was 17. Okay. And she was, uh, she was I think, she was a very old 76. You drinking too? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, in fact, it, it, this is a different time. This is the 80s in California. We live next the, – the trailer court was next to a liquor barn. I don't know if they still have liquor barns down here, but it's like 10,000 square feet of liquor. I just went up with my dad up into the, you know, the glass room where they take the shoplifters, and you can look over the whole store. My dad wrote a note to the manager, and at 17, I could go into the liquor barn with this note, and I could fill an entire uh, like oversized grocery cart with Schaefer beer. Wow. You know, I couldn't, I didn't, you know, I'd throw a few polliners in there for myself, but mostly I just drank hers because I didn't want any red flags to go up. Right. You couldn't do that today. No, no way. No way. That's like, that's like small, that seems like small town stuff. Right. And it was Sunnyvale, and, which wasn't really small. By the way, the other thing that I always think about with regard to like the old, the old days or small towns is when you used to have like store credit. Remember oh, that? Yeah. You ever read about that? Yeah. You see that where it's just like, oh yeah, just put it on my tab. Sure. Yeah. I, I, even into the late nineties, I had a few bars that would do that for me. Oh, wow. Um, oh, yeah, but back to the trailer court. The thing I noticed is, but, you know, we were talking about the, that conventional wisdom, how you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But I was watching all the – it was primarily widowed women in this place, you know, or the majority of them. And I was watching these women after their husbands had died, you know, women who had been called Mrs. Harry C. Hank or, you know, I mean, for 50 years voted how their husband voted, ate what their husband voted, learned to want out of life what their husband wanted. And then when their husbands were gone, I was watching them totally reinvent themselves. And that totally stuck with me. Like, How so? How so? Whole new political ideologies. Yeah. You know, I mean, 80-year-old uh, women taking community theater classes. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would, even at 17, I was really impressed because, you know, at 17, it's like, oh, God, old people. You know what I mean? But, like, I was, I was, these are the people I, you know, I didn't really have much of a social life. I didn't know. So I was hanging out, you know, with a lot of old people. And and it's I a was, weird experience. I remember uh, I got arrested in high school for drinking, you know, something stupid. And had to do community service. And I remember I had to go uh, for a couple of weeks. I had to clean up at, an, at a retirement home. But it was, you know, people are ill and like just like wheeling, you know, these kind of uh, zombified people out in their wheelchairs and 
then, but then going into the rooms and talking with them, you know, some of the people were totally coherent and you could sit there and have conversations with them, but it's a rare experience to be uh, in a concentrated population of senior citizens. Yeah, you Especially can make the argument person. that they're more adaptable than young people in a lot of ways. Everyone thinks they can't change, but I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen it firsthand. They have to adapt. They have to adapt. I mean, these women had a whole new lives. You know, they never balanced their own checkbooks before. You know, it was, I mean, many generations of women, it was like that, you know. Yeah. Harriet is a little more progressive. She's the son of a, a son of a prominent attorney, and she has professional. The, the daughter of a prominent attorney. The, yeah, the daughter of a daughter. He wants a son. He gets her. Um, he's Harriman. His name's Harriman. She's Harriet. Um, so, and, and this is what my mom went through. My mom, my mom wanted to, she went to, she wanted to be an art history major and do all this stuff. But then, you know, she met my dad and ended up getting pregnant five times and never had a job until she was 39. After my sister died and my dad left, she had her first job of her life. She was the milk lady at the, you know, at the elementary school. And then she was worried she was going to embarrass me. So she quit that job and got a job at a bank. You know, and that's adaptability. You yeah. know? I mean, but she was only forty. I'm she had five. I she had five kids room. by the time she was thirty-nine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then your yeah. sister, your sister passed away in an accident. Yeah. Car. We talked about that the first time. I mean, you yeah. were you were episode one. Yes, I was first episode of this yeah. show. You were the guest, and now you're I back. I am. Um, but for people who haven't heard that or don't have context, like that was a that's a pivotal moment in your personal history. Your fa- obviously, like yeah, just everything. My family. We went from like this sort of '50s nuclear family straight into the you know Kramer versus Kramer late '70s. Just by that one event, we just scattered, and uh, no, yeah, nothing was ever. No, nobody, everybody sort of got stunted at that uh, point. Yeah, what is I it? was young enough to you know I was pretty resilient. It worked out the best for me. You know, I've been mining it my whole life for material, really. Well, I mean, it's a definer, and uh, I think loss deepens people. Hopefully. At auto, you would think. Mm-hmm. What about uh, like where are you at now spiritually? Do you have any like? Does that? Do you have like any kind of defined? You know, my dad was a minister. My grandfather was a minister. I didn't I know that. Yeah, I don't go to church. He was a bodybuilding minister, um, <laughs> and my grandpa was. I think he was Baptist or something, or maybe Lutheran. I don't remember. I got dragged to church all the time when I was a kid. You what, know? what? What was the uh, religion? What was the? Well, they're strange. Protestant, but okay. I don't, it just varied. My dad, anybody that let him have a pulpit, yeah. I mean, he did Methodist, he did Baptist, he did. He just he just likes to talk in front of people. Is he still with us? He's still with us. Okay, yeah, well, basically. What's he doing? He's still. Uh, he he uh, he has this. Um, for a while, he was living off the grid in the back of a cube truck and just hauling his feces around in a wheelbarrow, <laughs> and like he had a, like a sixty foot ham radio tower. And I mean, I don't know who he's talking to. But this. I think the signal just went all the way down the, around the earth and came back to him because, like, who's doing ham radio? That's old school. Yeah, but I mean, so what was he doing before your sister passed away, and then you get to the point where you're wheeling your feces around like that? Is that a, is that like is it all of a piece? Is it connected? Did he he's really... just rugged individualist. I mean, he once he once is he once you know. He, he had bought 39 acres out in the hills of southern Oregon, and, and it was off the grid. He like near Ashland, that kind of place? Almost, but uh, uh, probably 40, 50 miles north and a little east, more okay. by like Shady Cove area, which is closer to Medford. And he bought this acreage that he couldn't develop. He couldn't do any plat development or anything because you had to cross this salmon stream or something to get into it. So he couldn't. So he just parked a cube truck out there, lived inside of it, and built some lean twos. And the reason he was hauling his feces around is because he had to do, you know, he had no sewer or anything. So he just dug a big pit. But I mean, he was, it was, he was happy. Yeah. There's my sister that instigated, like, we got to get him out of here. He's going <laughs> to die. He's not going to make it. He was like, you know, 80 years old doing this. Yeah, yeah. And so we finally got him out. And now he is, um, 
he has this uh, he has like a trailer that he lives in and it's got all his ham radio equipment in one room and then it's like every woman's nightmare and then the <laughs> next room is like a gym and it's like you know he's still working out he's still working out he's very he's read thin he doesn't eat anything but like nuts and fruits now but I mean he I mean for for a guy his age he looks incredible but wow. like he he doesn't have the bulk he did he was competing until he was in his sixties and I mean he looked he was a but you never got into it. Well, come on, Brad. Look at me. I mean, a little bit, right? A little bit. I think it's, maybe this is just natural. No, I have an aversion to gyms. I hate them. Hate them. I had to spend my childhood in gyms. I hated it. You yeah. Know what I mean, yeah, yeah. So I chipped my tooth on a barbell. And yeah. and in churches, you were getting you said you were getting dragged to church. Yeah, and so like that Christian ethos is kind of with me. I mean, I see it in some of my books. You know, I don't think about it. I don't go to church. I don't. I don't believe in the in the in the the doctrine so much. But like, I mean, if you look at a book like Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, you look at the fact that I really only have one major theme which is reinvention i think it's stuck with me why is why is reinvention your one major theme because i have to believe people can change it's the only thing that matters to me is that that we can be our or try to be our idealist selves because we're also flawed you know again which is part of that christian doctrine which is that you know you know we're, we're all sinners or whatever you know uh and i'm a big one so don't i don't want this to sound like a uh, religious diatribe. I'm not religious at all. I'm just saying that I guess the stories, the metaphor, the ethos is sort of ingrained in me to the point where, like, I mean, I remember when somebody, I think it was the New Yorker reviewed Revised Fundamentals and they called it like a secular saint's journey, you know, because it was this series of humiliations and a, you know, a, a story of, 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 you know, redemption and coming back to life. And that that's powerful stuff to me. Well, no, it's funny. I was somebody tweeted the other day, I think it's a Hemingway quote. They said it was a Hemingway quote, but it was like, you know, a, a man has to like either suffer a lot of beatings or a lot of humiliations in order to write a funny book. That's I would a, agree with that. Yeah. yeah. You got to be knocked down. I mean, somebody you've written 14 novels four only four of which have gotten published. So you're, yeah. you're clearly somebody who's got some resilience. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I just do it cause I have to, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, if I didn't have the stories, if I didn't have a place to put the voices and stuff, I mean, I would, I would definitely be like an IV drug user or, or else, you know, homeless and yelling at parking meters. And that, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, I'm biochemically just off the map. You yeah. know, I drink, that's why I drink, I'm a self-medicator. I drink tons of beer. I smoke lots of pot. I don't sleep much. And that's when I write best is when I manage to, you know, with a slight hangover. Are you worried about? Uh, My liver? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you an addict? What? Um, well, you know, technically uh, uh, the, 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 me the mental part of it is, yeah, I guess I have to be. But, you know, I, I read a study where I, I, I would be, they, I would be classified as a heavy drinker rather than an alcoholic. But I mean, You're even, man even though I can out drink most alcoholics, I guess it's just because I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a functional alcoholic. Maybe that's what you'd say. You I, have the writing. You get up in the morning and do the work. Yeah, you... It doesn't affect my, I mean, I, and I'm not like, you know, it's not like a hey, drunk daddy dropping his kids. You know, I mean, I have, I drink my beer after the kids are asleep and I'm out in the garage listening to records or writing or something. And, but I don't, yeah, I, I, I worry about that. I, I probably get some lifestyle changes coming, but I built it so effectively into my brand. It's like nobody will let me. <laughs> Every bookstore, I did an event at noon at the Ferry Building in San Francisco yesterday, and they had beer waiting for me. And no like, shit. Yeah. Who's they? Uh, Book Passage. Okay. Cheryl Croker McKean. You know? your, your reputation precedes you. Right. Well, I did that. I purposely built because I thought, well, here's one of the perks. I can get these people to buy me free beer. And I just did too good a job of that. Yeah. And but so, maybe you'll get into bodybuilding in your uh, later years. That's true. My my wife would probably like to see me go to the gym a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, it's like the thing about it. I mean, I always worry about people who drink a lot or, um, I mean, I don't know. I drink a half a bottle of wine at night, usually. Every night? Every night. With dinner, I have two glasses of wine. 
I guess that's self-medication. Yeah, two glasses of wine. That's like that, that's still at the level though where it's like good for your heart. Right? That's, what, that's I why I'm doing it. It's like the yeah, whole like oh, that's right. how I rationalize. Yeah, it. Yeah, no, I drink like you know six eight beers, a couple shots of tequila just to keep it fresh. And, you know <laughs> what I mean? Then maybe a couple of big bong tokes. I mean, it's it's too much. It's too much. Yeah. You passing out in your office? No, or? never. No, you got to well, see. That's the thing. I still maintain. I don't. I metabolize it so much quicker. But the thing is, though, is that eventually it seems like the other shoe's going to drop, right? Eventually yeah. you're going to get older, and I'm it's just like going to shit my liver out or something. One of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I got to stop. I got kids. I'm going to. I've been giving it a lot of thought lately. What would but, it take if you did? I mean, if you say, like, I'm going to make lifestyle changes, like, do you think you could just do it cold turkey? Dude, I almost did one night because I ate a pot brownie, and uh, I was laying in bed with my kids, and I felt this lump in my chest about the size of a golf ball, and it was a dark existential night, man. I yeah. thought, oh, my God, I'm dying. My kids are asleep. And then I went to the doctor a couple of days later, and he goes, ah, it's your xiphoid process here. Eat an antacid. You're going to be fine. He, he did all my blood work. He said, you know, uh, blood sugar's a little bit high, which was a relief, and, uh, you know, Cholesterol's a little bit high. Maybe just cut some fat out of your diet. Keep being active. And so that kind of I, – I, if he would have said, look, your blood sugar's really high. Like like pre-diabetic. Yeah, right. That would have, that would have stopped. You know, yeah. I'd be thinking about my kids. But as long as everyone's going, hey, you look great. You're fit. You know what I mean? <laughs> doing, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. Yeah, right. you know, but some people are blessed that way. Like I think like, – I just read an article somewhere about – uh, cigarette smokers, like there is, there are people who can smoke into their eighties. My grandma, I mean, I told you she smoked two packs a day. I, I think she didn't quite make eighty, but she also didn't leave the house. I mean, she was just like her whole, her, you know, her trailer was like a lung full she, of smoke. I mean, like when we <laughs> when she died and we moved her out, you know, I mean, just you took a picture off the wall and it was just yellow. Like, wow. Oh God, it's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. You don't smoke cigarettes? No, I did. I, I used too. to smoke like a, so this is why I know I have the will to quit whatever I want. Like I, coffee was giving me, giving me, um, you know, what you, uh, acid reflux. And uh, since this tour started, I haven't had a single cup of coffee. Just like that, and, you know, it's a crutch. I got rid of that. I got rid of cigarettes. Uh, I've only smoked pot once, like in the last couple. I can do it. Yeah. In fact, I'd probably be doing it right now. Except every time I show up at a bookstore, they got beer waiting for me, and I don't, don't want to be rude. Pot seems healthier. Yeah, until you look at the inside of your bong. Yeah. You know what I mean? How can they say, they're like, oh, it's fine for your lungs, and like my bong is just disgusting. Yeah, I say that. I say, I just like, you know, it's the le- it's the least of the evils or whatever. But then again, like, when you smoke pot, like, pot fucks you up, man. Like, it, I feel like, I mean, maybe you have a neurochemistry that can handle it better than I could. But, like, I can't be social. I can get paranoid. Like, like what happened to you with the pot brownie where suddenly you're, like, having an existential crisis? Or... Like more often than not, and this sounds benign, but is actually not a hundred percent fun. Is where you're laughing when you don't want to be laughing and you can't control it. That's I like, never get like that. Oh, I, see, I, I did the first, you know, when I was like a teenager and I got stoned. What are you trying to say, Johnny? No, no. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to say that that's fun. It's probably funner for you than it is for what it is for me. Is like an exercise for, in uh, focus. Uh-huh. You know what I mean, it really just helps me focus. I, I smoke the stuff when I write because it's like I got my, my wheels are spinning. I've got I've got all these emails that are hanging over me and all this busy work to be done and all these projects around the house. When I smoke pot and then sit down to write, I just it, it allows me to focus. It you write this book? You wrote your novel stoned? I, I think I've written most of my stuff stoned at some point. Not always. Not, it's not a rule like I have to, but like yeah. particularly at times when I'm feeling a little scattered, it helps me. Huh. I mean, it's not a, it's not a rule like I couldn't write if I wasn't stoned. You, just, you edit, I mean, do you edit, do you have like a rule where like you, you can write it, but then you edit sober or is it all the same? No. I mean, it's just all focusing. I don't feel like any, any kind of mental, uh, you know, faculty that I compromise 
is one that I feel like needs to be compromised. Uh-huh. I mean, because the focus is more important than the actual intelligence. I don't think I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm using that huge a part of my brain necessarily when I'm. It's not at least not the analytical part of my brain because like I'm literally just inside the story. So it's more like daydreaming than it is like writing. I'm not just sitting there agonizing over my sentences. You know, that's, I mean, I can be a lyrical writer, but I don't go out of my way to, you know, I mean, I just, I just look at the, the words are like the blood inside the, in, in the blood inside running through the story. So I, I don't, yeah, I don't, it doesn't alter me except that it just slows me down and that's helpful. Yeah. Well, there's something I read. It was like, make your mind a movie camera, write down what, what you see. Be like a nice way to simplify the, the process of writing fiction instead of, or what was it? It's like a, it was like a, you know, that list of uh, writing rules that Kerouac did. You know how writers do that? They'll have like a, a list of their own oh, yeah, writing. But that guy's like, okay, take a piece of butcher paper and type for three days on <laughs> no, Benzedrine. Like, I mean, it was like, don't think of the right word, but to see picture better. It was like one of his little like koans or whatever. That makes some sense to me. Like, to you, me, like I really feel like I'm living it. I mean, I really feel like I crossed the Olympics in 1889 in the middle of the worst winter. And, you know, I never got out of my bathrobe. Yeah. But it felt that real to me, you know, short of the frostbite and everything else. That's what I love about it. That's what kept me going for eight books when no one was publishing. It wasn't the the idea that like if I just do number nine, it's going to be this will be the one. You get my, you get off that hardcore on your imagination. I do, absolutely. It's empathy. What I'm looking for is experience. I'm looking for genuine experience. So in this body, I probably got seventy five, eighty years of that. But if I can write about anybody I want, just in West of here alone, I got to be like a six year old native kid in the nineteenth century. I got to be a fifty six year old, uh, you know. Uh, black parole officer dude and the, the modern times I got to be a new woman of the 1890s I got to be you know I got to you know it makes you a more expansive person at the end of the day I think it makes you I mean it's all about empathy for me I can't I'm, I take everything personally like I can't live in New York I couldn't do it why because there's just too much suffering I mean I, I can do it for about a week but then I start feeling like I'm walking around in a Vin Benders film or something where I'm hearing all these voices and like every every you know miserable guy with food in his beard holding out his arm i start like imagining what his life looks like not just right there but like later tonight and tomorrow in his childhood and it just unfolds and unfolds and unfolds it's just it's the one thing i think it, i mean i don't want to say gift but it's the one skill i have as a writer is, is the empathic this ability to you know the rest of the stuff you just learn i'll tell you i lived in hollywood not that hollywood's the worst neighborhood in los angeles but there's a lot of homeless where i live the accumulation of rough visuals. I don't know how to talk about it, you know, but the accumulation of seeing that suffering day after day after day had a, had a a bad impact. Yeah. It desensitizes you or it just, it, it wears your heart down. It breaks your heart. I mean, when you get your heart broken like that, like it's just, it's, it's bad to see that. It's hard to see that every day. It's actually, it's also good to see it because you know, you can easily insulate yourself in some sort of like, uh, you know, posh gated community or something and not have to think about the suffering of the world. So in a way, I'm glad that like, I'm not insulated and that I'm aware that of how, you know, good I had it, uh, good, good I have it and like an obligation that I have, um, to try to be a, a help. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I think about it constantly. It's not that I'm trying to insulate it by not living around it. It's that, I feel so helpless when I'm around it. You know what I mean? Because you can't help every single person you pass by. You know what I mean? What do you do? What do you do when you see a homeless person? 
you know, it just kind of depends on, you know, a little bit of his, their style too. You yeah, know? Yeah. And I don't, I don't like the bum rush as much as anybody else. I mean, sometimes I'll give a guy five bucks and he'll be like, hey, come on, give me some more. And I'm like, yeah. fuck you. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah. like generally speaking, I mean, it just, it's all relative. I don't know. I, it's just like, it's the accumulation. If I it, just on an individual one-to-one basis, I can deal with the suffering or I can deal. See, back to the empathy thing. Like I have no problem with seeing my own blood or my own pain because there's no disconnect there. I mean, I'm like, okay, there's this huge gash in my arm, spilling blood, and it hurts in a very specific way, but I can kind of like follow the nerves all the way up and everything. But when you see it happening to somebody else, it's like there's this disconnect there. You don't, you can't gauge the suffering. And it's just probably, I don't know, it seems like it's a lot worse than your own somehow. I have to remind myself when animals and things are suffering that, uh, that, that, that shock, you know that the body itself starts to produce dopamine and you know what i mean that shock actually we that god we have this thing that will help alleviate the suffering animals know how to suffer better than humans it seems yes, like they have like stoic. a natural intelligence they know how to be sick better than humans they don't worry about it i mean they they, they might feel bad but they don't worry about it they don't neuroticize it um yeah i, I like i'll tell you this is funny i had a um i had a moment this is a confession I had a, like relative to the the whole like homeless thing and, and the suffering of uh, you know people and uh, I was living in Hollywood. I kept seeing these people in my neighborhood. There's a church that feeds them, which that's the funny like that's the the dark joke is that it's like with this church, please stop feeding these people because <laughs> the neighborhood's overrun. You know that was why there was such a high concentration in this little weird pocket of Los Angeles. And so you know we used to joke you know darkly about it, but you know, obviously it's a good thing to feed the homeless. And so, uh, I got to a point though, where I started to feel like an asshole because I was like walking past these people, just like people just sleeping on a piece of cardboard every day, you know, yeah, like, downtown LA is just, uh, you know, it's like the, the garment district, dude, yeah, that's like, yeah. skid row. But I mean, like it's, you know, it was a smaller, it was a, a microcosm of that in my neighborhood, but I'd walk past people, go to the grocery store and there'd just be like a woman sleeping on concrete filthy and i'd walk right past her and i finally was like what the fuck am i doing like every time i pass somebody like that i made this vow to myself every time i pass somebody like that i'm gonna stop and i'm gonna try to do something and i did it for like a little while and then i fell off the wagon because you get busy i hate to say that but like you're on well, your... Yeah, I mean, you'd have to be Mother Teresa. I mean, you wouldn't get anything done, dude. I mean, I mean that's what I'm. That, that's what I'm saying. There's so much you can't do anything about that. I, I just. So now I'm like, maybe like every time I see a homeless person, I'm gonna just at, at the very least, I'm just gonna give every single one of them a couple of bucks. Just kick them and say, get a job. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a hard part of living in a city, and I feel like the problem is getting worse, and I feel like Los Angeles. Uh, maybe as a function of the climate, you know, it's an attractive place for people who are on, you know, uh, have fallen on hard times. At least if you're living outside, you're not, you know, in sub-zero temperatures. But, you know, the economy in 2008, in the past, you know, seven, eight years or whatever, seems like more and more more people have gone to live on the streets. It's like, what the fuck are we going to do? At some point, we got to do something to really solve this. It's It's just a fucked up situation. I would like to see the demographics on it because... You know, it seems like there was a time when there was probably a higher proportion of mentally ill people. But now that the middle class has been completely gutted and you, you read about families of four living out of cars and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the demo is just different than it used to be. I think that. Uh, well, then there used to be public funding and institutions for the mentally ill that as if I am getting my history right, Ronald Reagan uh, 
uh, turned all those people onto the streets, cut the funding. Like during that presidency, that's what happened. And uh, that's why there were, there was a large, in, you know, outflux of people from institutions uh, back out into the world and, you know, without support systems, you know, like if they're in these institutions in the first place, they likely don't have family, you know, familial support or people who are wanting to be, you know, 24 seven caregivers, which a lot of these people need. Uh, so it's like, that's the thing is that at some oh, point, which we could afford too. you know, yeah. when we spend, we spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to push legislation to try to make something like that happen. If you just took hundreds and hundreds and millions of dollars and just, you know, put it in a bank account I mean, and God. assign some sort of executor to it, everybody would be taken care of. You would think everybody, I mean, you could give it, what was it? I read that they spent like, you know, on, on, on the, 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 the you know. Obamacare spent like you know something like five hundred million dollars just on the trying to get the legislation through, and, and I mean if that's a million dollars for everybody in the country, if everybody just had a million dollars in an account, I mean you know whatever, and you know that would cost you know everybody could get a liver transplant, everybody could you know, and it's just it's 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 all mixed up, man. Allocation of funds, it's fucked up. So Mike Munoz. That's a how, good transition, right? How far are you? How far I'm are done. You? I'm done with the book. I'm, I'm rewriting it now. Um, there's a couple. There's a narrative mechanism in there I didn't like because it's the blog. It started as a blog. I started writing the book because I didn't want my publisher to know I was writing a different book than the one I was supposed to be. So you working were working on? They they thought you were working on Huntington Sales, and you started working on Mike Munoz. Yeah, I just needed to work on something right then, and so I just started working. I, I started that blog, Mike Munoz Saves the World net. Purposely got .net. It's, you know, monkey shit brown. It's just like really bad <laughs> HTML. And you just, it's like an endless scroll. Yeah. Just like scrolling for hours. And so the blog is how it started. And that's where I discovered Mike's voice. And Why he, a blog? Um, just because I could go out there and I could connect with readers with it. And I felt like it was topical. You know what I mean? It was, a, it was, a, you know, it was about class in America. And uh, I felt like, I mean, it's always about connecting. Whether, it doesn't matter if my name is, it came from me. And I want it to end up somewhere. There has to be some end user. So it's not about the credit. So it didn't matter that it wasn't my name, but I needed there to be an end user. I don't want to write in a vacuum because it is. It's a, you know, you're writing to communicate. And so um, it started as a blog and then, then it really started, turned into a novel. But then the novel couldn't really absorb the blog without creating all kinds of ambiguities like what what is what is the narrative here and what is the blog. and what, So I'm just going through and trying to figure that out. But I mean like the narrative arc's all done and – I always thought, you know, I, I thought a lot about class my whole life because I, you know, I grew up working class kid in, a, in an affluent community, and you know, like you know, being in that situation where it's like, you know, ha- have your friends drop you off at the end of the driveway so you know see where you live, kind of thing. And I always thought if I was gonna, were you sensitive to that? That's what you did. Well, a little bit. It's hard not to be when you're just surrounded by you know wealthy kids. Um, yeah. And most of my bandmates were like that too. I was in punk bands, and all the punk kids in, in, on Bainbridge Island in the, in the early '80s were. They were all working class kids. There was there was no rich punk kids, yeah, um, like there were in Orange County or whatever. And that's not to disparage a lot of great punk rock that came out of Orange County in the right. early 80s. But yeah. most of those kids, I think, were probably working class too. Um, now that I think about it, um, I, what was I saying? Oh, oh, well, I thought if I was going to write about class in America, I would do some sort of more like West of Here, some big world-beating, multi-point-of-view, crossing geography and even even times. But then I realized I just needed one irreverent working-class voice. And I wanted to give it a kind of a comic treatment, but a sort of an irreverent comic treatment. And so that, that's where Mike Munoz is born. And I think I'm really excited to 
get him to readers because I think, you know, there's just so much disenfranchisement now. And, you know, wealth disparity hasn't been this bad since the 1850s, you know. And we're back where we are. Yeah, no, we're back to the robber barons and everyone else, except that we don't even have, you know, we don't even have the hope of homesteading. At least then, you know, it was like, come on, you know, take a shovel and a mule and go try to make a life for yourself. Right. No, there's no even playing field. And it was good good real estate, too. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) Some of the best real estate in the world. But now there's no, you know, there aren't those opportunities. And so Mike is a 23-year-old landscaper who lives on the Indian Reservation. And, uh, you know, but all his accounts are over on the island. And so it's just, I don't know, kind of Augie Marchish in a way, just like an American kid navigating the class system of America or something like that. Yeah. I'm excited. It's funny. What's the, what's the, uh, what's going to happen? It feels like the other shoe's got to drop with American class. I mean, I don't mean to, to get too, uh, grandstandy or to ask you to make some sort of like sweeping pronouncement, but I mean, you, you sat there and, and kind of dug around with this stuff, writing a novel about it. Like, do you have a sense of what has to be done for things to improve? Or do you have a sense of what might happen? Well, I mean, the, the way I'm looking at this thing is, is like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired. I'm all about Bernie. I mean, what do you, if you don't want an honest guy that's like, you can look at his record. I mean, a guy who's been backing up what he says for four decades, you know what I mean? If you don't want that, what's your problem? The impetus is on you. I'm getting tired of all these Hillary apologists like saying, well, oh, it's just, it's not the same thing as Nader. And I don't care if Nate Silver says it's a statistical impossibility. You have to get over that noise. You just have to, I mean, I'm going to vote for the guy. Even if it means Hillary doesn't win, because you know what's going to happen? Some some idiot like Donald Trump takes over, then it's going to go down anyway. I mean, he'll probably bring it all the way down. So either either it needs to start, you know, we need to start changing it now, or 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 just, I mean, honestly, just let it go. You think it? Yeah, because that's the that's it's the bro- fear. It's so it's it's so broken. I mean, it's so broken. If we just let it go completely, then 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 we can start talking about revolution. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the scary thought, though. Is like Jesus Christ. Do we need to have the whole thing break apart and? It could get ugly. We have an opportunity right now. I mean, we're not. I mean, we're better off than when we were eight years ago. I mean, if, if we could get like Bernie and Warren in there, first thing you got to do is just like you know change the tax structure a little bit. You know, Boeing ought to pay more than a buck a year by my reckoning. Yeah. You know, I, it just makes sense. Well, they so you got Bud Smith's book up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I talked about it here. We're, yeah, we need more Bud Smiths out there. I think so. Too. I started F two fifty. I haven't finished it, but I just. I like that this guy's working on an oil refinery and writing his, you know, writing his novel in the bathroom. Yeah, no, he's great, man. His attitude is awesome. I love that. He is, he is Mike Munoz, basically. Right, yeah. right, and just like a happy warrior, he's happy to be doing it. Doesn't you know? I don't know. I, I am, uh, I admire his attitude. Yeah, me too. But you know, it's like the, the but to go back to because I think about like somebody like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, let's say they win. You know, you have these people that win. They would have to really have a long tail and bring into uh, office, uh, you know, a legislator, you know, a legis- uh, legislative body that could enact their policies. Otherwise, right? They're going to be lame ducks or something. They're like just. That. Well, I mean, imagine them getting in there and like having to deal with an intransigent opposition. Like, there's uh, not it filibuster, a- filibuster, filibuster, filibuster. Yeah, right. I, I get it. But it, it, if nothing else, it slows down. Yeah. What's speeding towards a brick wall. I mean, I, I just don't see the bad in it. I just, I really don't see any other choice. I mean, the fact is, nobody owns the guy. That's all I need to know. Yeah, I'm just tired. Nobody of Nobody owns Trump either. <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> I love that that guy would be a lot wealthier if he just didn't do anything with his money. If he would have just put it in an IRA, yeah, when he inherited forty million dollars. They said he'd be 
wealthier today. So, really? Yeah. No, no, they did. Yeah. He inherited $40 million. He inherited $40 million. And they said if they, if he would have just put it into bonds or something yeah. you know, sort of conservative, he would have, he would be worth more money than he is today. I mean, the, the guy, I mean, he's not Midas. Everything he touches really kind of turns to shit. Right. I mean, he's he bankrupt stuff. Well, it's like, you know, born on third base, acting like he hit a triple. I know. Yep. All right. It's depressing. You, are you, you, you an activist? Like, are you like you get out there and like hand out leaflets, or are you just basically? Not as much as I should. I mean, I, I've been thinking if I wasn't so busy, I want to think of some way to get on board with Bernie. I would like to get on the phone with small business owners because I'm basically a small business owner as an independent contractor, and and just talk to these people and go look. You know, because a lot of the fear, you know, everybody's afraid of this socialist socialism war, and everybody's afraid. Bernie's going to get their hands in, in, in their pockets. And I would just like to get on the phone with small business owners and go, look, how could this possibly be? You've already got two hands in your pockets. I mean, how could it be worse for you? You're, 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 you're absorbing the brunt of the tax burden. You're paying at a rate way higher than the, the 1%. I mean, how could this be worse for you? I, and, and, you know, Mike Munoz is a form of activism too, you know? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, that's say. what I can effectively do, you know? But no, I should, I should be out there canvassing. I should get off my butt instead of just... I don't know, you know, man. But sometimes uh, storytelling like that, uh, you know, bringing bringing those themes to life in a narrative is a valuable service to provide. It can resonate maybe more deeply than somebody who's just coming at people with a polemic. That's true. And again, I don't have to get out of my bathrobe. Which is yeah, <laughs> right. It's a, it's a win-win. <laughs> so how many cities are you doing? You said 30 cities? Something like 34, 35. So in a row. Like this is just a big process. I got two days off. I have two days but off. But you leave your family, you get on the road, and you just like... You're just uh, pounding the pavement, shaking hands, I'm kissing. I'm a warrior. I get up. I mean, an average day for me looks like I get up at about 6 in the morning and either get a car service or a cab or something, go to go to the airport, get on a plane, get to my hotel, uh, immediately take my clothing off uh, just because that's what I do in a hotel room. Maybe, <laughs> maybe moisturize, maybe take a bath, go to my event, drink the inevitable beer that's there, eat a meal, go out with friends or booksellers or somebody afterwards. What's your favorite city to go on tour? You must have, I mean, you've been on, on a million tours now. So like, what's, where do you like to go? What do you look forward to going to? A lot of different places for a lot of different reasons. I like coming here because uh, even though it's unbearably hot right now, um, I have so many friends here and there's just such a vital literary culture. And like, you know, when I go to book soup tonight, I know I'll see a lot of faces I'm really happy to see. So for that reason, I like coming here for, I like going to Salt Lake City just because I have a one really close friend that always like does something really neat to me. Like he took me to BYU to the catacombs and I, he got me, uh, he got me access to all these original Dickens and Victorian manuscripts and stuff with oh, like shit. annotated by hand and neat stuff like that. And it's just like an incredibly beautiful city. Or a place like Durango, Colorado, I like to go because I'll have a little time in the day and I can take a rental car and go out in the mountains. You go to Durango on book tour? Yeah, I do a lot of I, I end up doing – I'm not doing it on this tour, but I end up doing a lot in Colorado. It was especially because of West of here really oh, spoke yeah. to people in the West. And so right. I started to develop a little audience. I think I probably sell – besides like you know Washington, Oregon, and California, I, I sell probably more books in Colorado than anywhere. I can see so that. I like going there. I'm excited about going to Oxford, Mississippi, because I've never been there, and everybody says it's just like this great little... What's the bookstore there? Uh, Square One. Square One, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I've never been to Nashville. I'm going to Nashville that time, so that's exciting. It's nice to add a few cities you've never been to. My only regret is that I'm going to spend more time. But luckily, I have friends everywhere, so somebody will show me like a great bar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny, come drink some beer at this great bar. I've never heard that one before. Um, you consider yourself a writer of the West? Like, I mean, do, like, do you get labeled that way? Like, is that something you embrace? Is, or is it? 
I, I, I know that I'm really lucky to be writing in the region I write in because it's such a strong book reading and book buying region. And they're incredibly, I mean, Seattle's got, you know, four major independent bookstores, big independent bookstores. And um, I, I sell a lot of books there and I have a, it's, you know, I generally write about the area, but I don't, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself as a regional writer. I just think that a lot of people in that region identify me because they know me and I'm from there. But uh, it's, if anything, it's just an advantage I have. You know, my home bookstore on Bainbridge Island, it's a little island of 20,000 people, but like my books are the top selling books of that bookstore of all time. I mean, I move hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of books out of one bookstore. And I like, I mean, how many writer friends do we have in Brooklyn that you don't have that advantage, you know? Right. I mean, it's literally one bookstore could probably keep my work in print. One independent bookstore because I went to high school there because I know everybody. I mean, I've infiltrated the community in so many different ways, having grown up there, uh, you know, gone, going to all the book clubs and, you know, uh, you know, having kids in school and meeting the other parents and like, you know what I mean? It's just like, and those are the people that will just keep buying your book over and over. Right. So what do you look at? Will you look to the future? Are you a person who makes a plan? One day at a time, or do you like do you have this mapped? Like, you, do you do a thought map for your career and say this is where I want to be when I'm 65? Um, no, I mean, not. Ri- I mean, I I just have kind of a mo. I mean, what I'm going to do, I'm going to keep doing this, and we'll see where it goes. I, I think I found some things that work for me. I don't know how, you know. I'm I don't know. I'm not. I, I like I don't know what's going to happen with that movie. I don't know what that's going to do to my career. It's already helped the profile, you know. Like a lot of foreign markets suddenly wanted my books that they didn't want to before just because sure, it's a yeah. movie, things like that. You can't plan for that. I just plan on doing this as long as, as long as I have the energy. You ever worry about the energy dissipating or not? It's having already. Any- I mean, I, I mean, I'm not as bushy-tailed as I was seven years ago already. But, you know, I think next time around I'll just, you know, I'll probably just, I'm, I'll be. You're gonna probably see a different incarnation of me eventually that's drinking. You know, those like chilled herbal teas and you know what I mean? <laughs> the glasses, the, the Franzen glasses will be I'll on. probably become a little more uh, high maintenance too. I notice that happens. Like when people stop living like me and then they have to do the tea, they're kind of like, I think, uh, sort of uh, conflicted inside and sort of irritable. So they become I think that might, be my, that might be me. I could be that guy. You don't strike me as irritable. I don't know. You were a little irritable on the phone earlier. Was I? Yeah. I think you were just worried I was going to wake your daughter up. No. No, no, no. Uh, no, but I'm just like, a, I have the health, I have the health nut thing going, dietary restrictions well, and all you, that when bullshit. You, when you give up stuff like booze and alcohol, I mean, you've got to have something. You've got to be kind of a zealot about something. Yeah. It's a big thing to replace. Yeah. I'm thinking about it a lot. I think it's probably coming. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, it's always great to see you. I appreciate you sitting in this uh, hot garage. It's really fun. I'm going to go take a bath. <laughs> uh, good luck on the rest of the tour. Good luck with the book. Good luck with Mike Munoz and the movie. Thank you, buddy. All right, guys, Jonathan Evison. Go get his novel. It's called This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, available now from Algonquin Books. You can find Johnny online at jonathanevison.net. He's on Facebook. He's uh, on Goodreads, probably. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at Jonathan Evison. You can find him online. He's available. Reach out to Jonathan. Say something to him. Read his book. His new novel, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about that app, the uh, Other People app. It's free. Go get it. Get it on your device. It's free. Sign up for premium. That's not free. Support the show. Don't forget about the the Nervous Breakdown book club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on book club in the menu bar. Sign up. Connect. 
to literary culture in a meaningful way. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. So, long day. Been working hard. I've been in a weird zone, I'll be honest with you. Here's what I've realized. Uh, I'm a high-energy guy. I thought I was a low-energy guy, but I'm a high-energy guy. I've got a lot of energy. I shouldn't be operating like this, considering how little sleep I'm getting. Got some energy. Strange energy. I don't know where it's coming from. Please remember that there are 260,430 words in Ulysses and that Aristotle's nickname at Plato's Academy was, quote, the reader. Uh, that's all for now. Thanks again to Johnny Evison. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to the fine people at Algonquin Books. And uh, just a lot of uh, gratitude all around. I'm overflowing. Thanks to Janis Joplin for uh, frightening me slightly in high school. I didn't know what to make of that in high school. I guess it seemed cool. It seemed weird. You don't hear that very often anymore from uh, rock stars, male or female, maybe especially female. How often do you hear a female musician just wasted talking gibberish on an album? That needs to happen more. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to let this song continue to play. We're going to get to the end together, and uh, I'm going to bid you farewell succinctly are you a high energy person or a low energy person <laughs> Jonathan Evison high energy guy he's a high energy fella he's way more high energy than I am I think even he I think he would admit that I think he would proudly admit that he's got me licked on the energy front coming after you Evison I'm on some sort of strange uh, parental manic high.